Hello, tour guide, tell all family. This is Rebecca, one of the Rebeccas, and I am here with a special bonus episode this week. We are celebrating two anniversaries this week on the pod. One is our pod anniversary. It's been one year since our first episode, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, debuted last March 2020, which feels like both five minutes and a thousand years ago. The other anniversary is actually the subject matter of this pod that we're re-releasing. Today, March 30th, 2021, is the 40th anniversary of the assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. So we thought we'd re-release this pod to celebrate and thank all our listeners for their devotion uh, in the past year. You will hear on this pod, not only me a little bit, but you'll also hear from Dan and Candon, who don't make an appearance that often on the pod anymore, since they're mostly behind the scenes and we love them the most. You will also hear some discussion about the right year. Last year, when we recorded this in 2020, it was actually the 39th anniversary of the assassination attempt on Reagan. This year, 2021, is the 40th anniversary. I've checked the math. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. So enjoy. We'll be back with a regular pod in your feeds this week. Uh, So never fear, you will hear from us a new episode, but we thought it would be fun to revisit this classic from the very beginning of our pod and thank everyone for their continued support. It's been a wild year. We're so glad everyone enjoys the pod and keep listening and thank you all very much. Welcome to another special edition of Tour Guide Tell All. I know last time we said that Dan was going to do drugs, um, but that is because last time we didn't know what day or date it was. Um, Every day. Yeah, I never have any idea what day or date it is, but especially right now. Like, (laughs) So we realized that um, today, March 30th, is the 40th. uh, 39th. 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 Sorry, did I say 40th? (gasps) I can't add. This is terrible. It was our answer. Yeah, media, I didn't guys. pick it up until I was looking. I was like, wait a second. One, two, three. Okay, so full disclaimer, <laughs> I'm a historian. <laughs> <laughs> Math is not my thing. <laughs> Today, years ago, <laughs> so um, the attempted assassination of President Reagan was on this date. Here in Washington, D.C. at the Hilton on Connecticut Avenue, north of DuPont Circle. Uh, And we really like to tell stories on the day that they happened. Uh, So we decided to do a a special edition uh, to focus on, on that event. So we brought in Dan... It's you. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Dan. How are you? I love hearing you tell this story. <laughs> this is a story I often tell on um, the dark side of DuPont, uh, which is a tour we give here at DC by foot. Um, and what's, I think one of the best things about being a tour guide for DC by foot is we don't all follow each other's routes and we sort of take a neighborhood and we take our own interests um, and we sort of jam it all together and make it work. Um, <laughs> So when we first started doing Dark Side of DuPont, I think some folks went off in an Alice Roosevelt's uh, direction, but that's not necessarily my forte. I didn't know too much about her at the time. 
Um, and I sort of wanted to um, talk about the Scientologists. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard, we may save that for another podcast, but L. Ron Hubbard actually invented Scientology in DuPont Circle. Um, so I wanted to head physically that way, north of DuPont Circle. And then I was like, well, what else can I talk about up here? He's actually just a few blocks away from what some DC folks unaffectionately call the Hinkley Hilton. The Hinkley Hilton. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that always makes me chuckle because um, some of the hotel people actually yelled at me <laughs> for really? saying that. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. That's one of my, my stories. Um, when I first started doing this tour, I would do it like right right at the spot. And if you've seen the famous photographs. Um, it's still like that. It's still, it looks exactly the same. The yeah. awnings are the same. It looks like a blast out of uh, the 1960s when it was built. Um, and there is a historic marker like right there. <laughs> Um, and that was sort of my response to the hotel guy who yelled at me. I'm like, we don't like you calling it the Hinkley Hilton. And I'm like, well, you have a historic marker right there. I don't know what else you want me to call it. So Washington Hilton, Hinkley Hilton, um, it is the site of this attempted assassination. Now I do like to tell this story um, because aside from the tragedy of James Brady, because um, he will be severely paralyzed and disabled by this incident, but he does survive. Everyone survives and Ronald Reagan, I don't care what you think about his politics. Um, <clears throat> and we, we live in a very left of center city. So I always say that uh, on tour. I don't care what you think about uh, President Reagan's politics. The man is an honest to goodness cowboy. True story. Um, yeah. And I think this story best exemplifies it. So let's set the scene. Um, we have a whole cast of characters, of course, uh, centering on the president himself, Ronald Reagan. Um, I think one of the most amazing things about this story is number one, he is 70 years old. He is not a spring chicken. The thing that I feel like that I emphasize when I talk about this is that we all have images in our head of Reagan, mm -hmm. some good, some bad. Mm -hmm. No one seems to have an, is, no one's indifferent to Reagan. But all of that has not happened yet. Reagan right. at this point is literally 69 days into his presidency. Yep. This is March 30th, 1981. He is untried, uh, untested, and you know, this is the cold warrior, the great communicator, the guy who stares down Gorbachev, that is all ahead of him. None of that has happened yet. And so it's hard, I think, for us, because we remember like the two terms and mm -hmm. all of that. Evil empire speech. The evil empire, all of that stuff. <laughs> right. um, none of that has happened yet. He's brand new on the job. And the other thing is we're in the middle of the cold war. Yeah. And Brezhnev is still leading the Soviet Union. So this is Reagan's talk tough, but is he going to deliver? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we are. And that's the snapshot of where we are. Yeah. And I, I do like to point that out to adults because I, I think you're exactly right. I think we sometimes look at this uh, attempt on his life through the lens of the rest of his presidency, which isn't entirely fair. Um, and I think it is important to realize just how new to the job he was and how freaked out the nation was because he he hadn't really gotten in. Like I said, he this was before the evil empire speech, but he certainly made his hatred of communism known uh, for all of his political career. Um, and that sort of set the stage for the first reactions to this. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of people thought this was like literally the end of the world, World War III. It was happening right right in front of us. Right. Um, There's a reason that the Americans, the TV show, yeah. starts out on right. the day that Reagan was the assassination attempt. Exactly. Um, so he, President Reagan, very new to the job, but uh, not new to the world. He is 70 years old. Um, and... Uh, the other interesting thing when I was researching the story is he actually tells an anecdote about this, how 
just about two weeks before the attempt on his own life, um, he and the first lady, Nancy, had gone to Ford's theater and he remembered. So, so spoiler alert, he survived. <laughs> so spoiler alert, he survived. Um, <laughs> and, um, he apparently at Ford's theater, which is a powerful place. And apparently President Reagan, as he's looking up at the box that Lincoln was in where he was assassinated, he sort of remarks to Nancy how easy it could be, even with all the, the Secret Service protection and how different life was for the president between Lincoln and, and his own time, how easy it would be for a determined person uh, to try to take out the, the, the president. Um, so that's for President Ronald Reagan. Then, of course, the other main character is the attempted assassin himself, a man named... Sure, the determined person. The determined person, <laughs> uh, the aforementioned determined person. Um, that's John Hinckley Jr. Um, he sort of lives a privileged life uh, in his youth. Um, he's actually pretty successful through high school. He is uh, elected class president twice. He plays all the sports, football, I think even hockey. And how old is he? And he, well, at the time of the, of this, he's in his late twenties, I think. Um, okay. But he will move to Dallas with his parents. He lives a very sort of privileged life. Um, is very successful in high school, but that success does not follow him to college. And he becomes more and more depressed, um, more and more mentally unstable, as his parents would sort of later testify um, during his trial. Um, and just sort of more and more unbalanced. Uh, he actually drops out of high of uh, college. Um, and it's sort of during this time in the 1970s uh, that he becomes obsessed with Jodie Foster after watching the movie Taxi Driver. <laughs> now, Rebecca, have you ever seen Taxi Driver? It's been a very long time. Yeah. Um, it's one of those movies that you don't need to see more than once. <laughs> Um, it is a fantastic movie. It's often listed as one of the top movies made ever. It's, of course, uh, one of Scorsese's breakthroughs. Um, of course, one of Robert De Niro's breakthroughs. Um, but it's a really disturbing and dark movie. Um, and he becomes obsessed with the movie and becomes obsessed with Jodie Foster, who plays a uh, trafficked child at this, I don't even want to call her a teenager, she's only about 12 years old. Um, so a, hu a human trafficked child and just sort of develops this very, very perverse, very sick obsession uh, with Jodie Foster that sort of incubates in his brain. Um, and he actually, when Jodie Foster, it's reported that she gets accepted to Yale, he moves to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, just outside of Yale University, actually enrolls in a writing class there. Um, and basically starts to stalk her, leaves her notes on her doorstep, um, calls her a few times. Um, of course, Jodie Foster makes it very, very clear that he is she is not the least bit interested, um, and even takes a few of the notes that was left to her to the local police because she's so disturbed. And and she was, you know, a child star. Uh, she had received disturbing mails and and other weird things from obsessed fans before, but there was something even darker and more twisted about what uh, John Lee Hinckley Jr. left her. And he just seemed so obsessed with her. Um, later, doctors would diagnose him with erotomania, uh, which is one of my favorite things to say on tour because everyone thinks I'm joking and they all burst out laughing like I just made up that word. I'm like, it is a real thing. It's a real thing. Absolutely. Um, the technical definition of erotomania is uh, basically someone who suffers from a delusion that someone else is madly in love with them but cannot publicly express it for some reason. 
Um, and in this case, John Hinckley Jr. believed that Jodie Foster loved him as much as he loved her, but she was unable to express this in public because he was not as famous as she was. Now, again, he watches this movie about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 times it comes out in, uh, in the later trial of Taxi Driver. Um, and as I said, it's a movie you only really need to see once. <laughs> <laughs> and and twice if you're sort of a film aficionado, and third if you're like getting a, an MFA or something like that. Um, but otherwise, it's a very dark and disturbing movie. And this is not like Netflix and chill time. It's not like, you know, today I could watch the same movie 20 times because I just leave it on Netflix. Like, he went out to the movie theaters, laid down hard, cold money, and then uh, saw this movie no less than 12 times in the movie theater. I was going to say, back in the, the 70s, that was an endeavor. Right? That was, I mean, it took models. a lot to like go see Yeah, yeah, yeah. Movie, let alone the same movie 12 times. So that's what sort of sets him up. And he becomes so obsessed with her, he moves back home to Dallas and becomes more and more obsessed with her. And then uh, sort of striking out one of the plot lines of the movie Taxi Driver. So for those of you, I never want to give away too much. And you should see the movie. It's a great movie just dark. Um, but the basic plot of the movie is a very mentally disturbed uh, Vietnam veteran played by um, De Niro, whose name is Travis Bickle. He becomes sort of more and more depressed and more and more isolated and suffers from insomnia. So he becomes a taxi driver, meets Jodie Foster, this child prostitute in the uh, course of events there, falls madly in love with a woman who also rejects him. Um, and it turns out that that woman is actually an aide for a senator who's running for president. And so there's a big plot line of the movie where Travis Bickle uh, is plotting to assassinate this senator. And that's where he sort of gets this idea that to become as famous as Jodie Foster, the easiest and quickest way to do that is, of course, trying to kill the president. Probably not wrong. Yeah, he's not, he's not wrong. Um, <laughs> in terms of I mean, I wouldn't advise it. I'm not I would advocating not it. We're not advising it, but in terms of, uh, of fame, um, that's one way you can do it. So Bickle is plotting this assassination. Um, Hankley becomes inspired by that. He will plot. Uh, he actually stalks Jimmy Carter and gets himself arrested in Tennessee uh, for illegal firearms possession. But he's arrested by the FBI and they don't make a connection and they never inform the Secret Service and eventually he's allowed um, to go free from that. Um, eventually after the election, which by the way, I think one of my other favorite parts of this is uh, he will later testify in court that he vo voted for Ronald Reagan, that this was not at all political or having anything to do with that. In fact, he told his parents he thought Ronald Reagan would be really good for the country. Um, so again, not at all a personal thing against Reagan or his politics or anything like that. Um, it was very much this delusion uh, that he was acting out. He's back at Dallas. Uh, it's now 1981. He starts to stalk obsessively President Reagan, uh, starts to follow his movements in the newspaper. At this time, he goes to a Dallas pawn shop and buys what back then was called a Saturday night special, a sort of a cheaply made 22 caliber pistol, a little six shot revolver there. Um, and he also buys Devastator brand cartridges, which is sort of fascinating to me later on in the story because those are explosive tipped bullets. Um, and that becomes important. So sort of tuck that away into the back of your mind. Um, he then will actually take a bus, Greyhound bus, from Dallas, Texas to Washington, D.C., stays in a hostel, starts looking at the president's movements in the papers, and comes to find out that on March 30th, he is due to give a talk to the AFL-CIO, 
at the time, the largest labor union in the United States. Feels like it's one of those invitations that people extend to the president and then don't ever expect him to, like, take. Yeah. Well, I think that's true now. But I think, you know, back then, um, Reagan's position with labor unions at the time was very different than than some Republicans today. Anyway, um, the point is uh, that he's due to give this speech at the Washington, D.C. Hilton. Now, that part is also really important to the story because that is most likely the reason why the Secret Service does such a crappy job here. Um, And they sort of own up to this. They fess up to this in an after-action report. They say that two huge problems emerged when they were sort of looking at the protocols of the president. Um, Number one is that they did not require him or any of their agents to wear their bulletproof vest that day. Uh, And the reason that the Secret Service was okay with that was because of the location, the Washington, D.C. Hilton. Um, It had something called the President's Walkway that made this place sort of the, one of the safest locations for the president to give a speech um, outside the White House itself. The president's walkway was part of the building that was built in 1963. Basically, it's a tunnel from the front of the hotel. It has no other entrances or exits, just one door goes to a single tunnel and it goes back to the ballroom. The reason for that is, well, first of all, it was was, um, built right after the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, because basically it eliminated any public exposure of any VIP that was coming to speak in the ballroom. That's why they think the Secret Service got so complacently. That meant that the only exposure to the public would be literally just the 10 or 15 feet from the door to where the limo was parked outside. Um, So sort of setting the scene, if you can think of like one of those hotel awnings, the limo had pulled through that and was actually almost halfway off the street. Um, so it was sort of on the sidewalk, getting with the uh, the face pointed out just in case they needed to make a quick getaway, which they did. So because of the president's walkway, they sort of get complacent. They don't make their agents or the president wear their bulletproof vests. They also don't bother to scan people or search people in what was known as the rope line. So everyone in the hotel, they got that. They made them go through uh, metal detectors and they wanded them down and searched them all. And everyone was uh, snug as a bug inside the hotel. But, um, of course, the presidential motorcade is outside the hotel. It's drawing a lot of attention. There's sirens and and lights flashing and things like that. So people just sort of like walk up and they're like, what's going on here? Um, And the Secret Service, as they did at a lot of public places, just sort of established a rope line, like a velvet rope, and said, you guys stay back here and the president will be out and he'll wave to you guys in, in just a few moments. And they didn't bother to scan anyone who was behind this rope line. It was going to be like 10 feet away from the president. Um, And that, of course, is where John Hinckley Jr. finds himself. All right, so we we have the scene set. The president is inside giving a speech to the AFL-CIO. He's about to make his way outside. He's coming down the president's walkway. He comes out the door. This is a very famous image. Um, Even before I even knew what this assassination was all about, even as a young kid, I remember seeing this photo or this video of the president coming out. He's got his arms in the air. And then that is where John Hinckley Jr. sees his chance. And that's basically like Hinckley's vantage point is exactly where the photographer is, right? Yeah, like well, it depends because there's, I mean, there's so many pictures of this. Right. Um, in my mind, it, my picture is a little bit far away from where uh-huh. John Hinckley Jr. was. He was sort of right underneath the awning. So president comes out, he is waving. John Hinckley Jr. sees his chance. He takes out this uh, Saturday night special and he fires off all six shots 
in 1.7 seconds. And we know this because everyone was there. And by everyone, I mean all the news stations, all oh, yeah. three of them back then that we had. Because uh, this was a major speech. It was also the, the president's 69th day, like he's still in that honeymoon phase. People are, the, the press is fawning over him. So we have this from multiple vantage points on video. You can go to YouTube right now um, and see sort of this horrific event, but six shots in 1.7 seconds. Now, where do these bullets go? Uh, the first one, as I mentioned at the beginning, that is the most devastating one. That is the one that strikes the presidential press secretary, James Brady, right directly into the forehead. The bullet will enter above his left eye and somehow miraculously miss his brain, but it will shatter um, sort of his skull or the back of his skull. Um, he will instantly go down. That is also the only bullet that will explode. So remember those Devastator brand yeah. bullets. Um, the rest of the six do not explode or else this, this could have had a much, much worse ending. But uh, despite the fact that this bullet exploded, that it entered his skull above his left eye, um, James Brady will, of course, survive this. He'll become a big gun control advocate. Um, and of course supports uh, the passage of the bill that was named after him and signed into law by President Clinton. Um, but he is the first one to go down. Immediately, a police officer sort of right next to him hears the shots. His name is um, Thomas Dillahanty. And he hears the shot and he sort of turns around to see where... So this is a DCPD? Is this a DC police officer? DC police officer. So he's sort of part of the, uh, the escort service. Um, Secret Service, of course, handling the main thing, but they're sort of uh, the DC police always around to sort of push people back or assist if necessary. Um, so he sort of spins around right at that moment. And again, you know, six shots, 1.7 seconds. So this is the second bullet. He sort of spins around. It will enter and go through his neck. He will go down and that's another famous picture. He's sort of almost on top of James Brady as they're both down at this moment. Then uh, the third bullet, at this point, people are reacting. So believe it or not, we're only about like, you know, 0.8 seconds into this, probably less, 0.5 seconds into this. And already people around the president are starting to react. One of them is Alfred Atanucci. Um, he is a labor leader from Cleveland, Ohio, and he's sometimes credited with, uh, you know, along with the Secret Service here, but with saving the president's life um, because he is actually standing next to John Hinckley Jr. And he starts to sort of hit him. Um, I think he strikes him in the head at first, tries to wrestle the gun away, um, but he will still, uh, Hinckley will still get off the other uh, four shots. But the third shot, as he's sort of wrestling around or he gets struck in the head, the third shot misses the president completely, misses the limo, misses everything, actually lodges in the building across the street. So that is the third shot. By this time, uh, the special agent in charge is basically pushing the president from behind, grabbing him by the soldiers, almost picking uh, the president up, grabbing him by the soldiers, and like tossing him into the uh, the limo's uh, door that had been opened at that time. Um, and then another Secret Service agent, Tim McCarthy, um, he reacts exactly as he has been trained to, and he is standing between the president and where the gunfire is coming from. He immediately sort of takes a big open stance, like trying to make his body and his arms and his leg as big as possible to essentially um, be the target so that uh, the bullet won't strike the president. So that's exactly what happens. He, uh, he gets his pay for that day. Um, this is exactly what he's trained to do, but he does take a bullet uh, to the abdomen that will lodge near his liver. Um, he will go down. So that's the fourth bullet. The fifth bullet 
uh, is now being aimed at back at the, the limo as he's sort of wrestling with the, the labor leader, Atsunuchi. Um, but the fifth bullet will strike the outside of the armored limo. The sixth bullet actually strikes the inside of the armored limo. And keep in mind, so the president is now being tossed into the car. Um, and as he's being tossed, somehow this bullet will deflect in the door and strike the, the president underneath the armpit. Um, it, the bullet will then travel across his lung. It grazes uh, a rib, travels across his lung, ultimately deflating it. And it will end, I think it's like less than half an inch away from his heart. Now, the most badass part of this, Rebecca, and the thing that always impresses me the most, um, the president has no idea that he has been shot. No one has any idea that he has been shot. Uh, later, they attribute this to, you know, adrenaline rush and, and, you know, your body just sort of shuts down. But when they get him into the car, which, by the way, was nicknamed by the Secret Service Stagecoach. Uh, and, of course, Ronald Reagan's Secret Service code name was Rawhide. Uh, so when I say he's a cowboy, I'm not joking. Secret Service thought so, too. Um, so they shove him into Stagecoach. Uh, basically jumping the last agent, the agent in charge almost jumps on top of the president, again, trying to use his body as a shield. As the limo races away, um, they get the president up. They say, Mr. President, Mr. President, are you okay? Are you okay? And he says, yes, yes, I'm fine. And then he starts to cough up this foamy red blood. Now, again, they have no idea he's been shot. And even with them, with him coughing up foamy red blood, they still don't think he's been shot. Um, they immediately jumped to the conclusion, which is not crazy. It's not a crazy conclusion, but they thought, oh, we had two giant football linebacker type secret service agents like jump on top of the president uh, in this limo. Maybe they cracked a rib. Maybe that rib has punctured a lung um, and maybe that's why he's bleeding. So they immediately divert from crown. That was the secret service name for the White House. They immediately divert from crown and they start to go towards George Washington University Hospital. So if you want a visual of this, uh, basically see the last episode of the first season of The West Wing. Uh, Bartlett gets shot in the rope line. Um, obviously this is fictional, uh, but uh, the Secret Service is heading back to the White House very much like this. And protocol is that they secure the principal, which is they get him back to the White House and safe and sound and then clean up after that. But And the White House does have... Oh, absolutely. The White House is a fortress. It has doctors. He's got admir Navy admirals that have MDs and all that stuff. And plus, you know, they can phone a friend and get some help. Um, right. And in the, in the TV show, just like Reagan, Bartlett starts to uh, cough up blood. And they realize that he's been, something bad has happened. And the, you watch the limo literally wheel around and he heads yeah. towards GW. And it is exactly like that. Like the limo just kind of does a turn on a dime. And presidents always go to George Washington University Medical Center. That's where they go if there's an emergency. GW is trained for this. They still do drills. I believe they do twice to a month to, to this day to prepare for God forbid something happening. And the uh, the ER is named the Ronald Reagan Emergency Trauma Center. <laughs> it is. But they did not really practice these drills back then. So the Secret Service get on the phone in, in the limo, in, in Stagecoach, and they call ahead to the emergency room. And they're like, look, we have a patient. We need a stretcher at the, the door of the ER, which was not standard protocol. If you need a stretcher, that's why you call an ambulance. So they don't just like have them hanging around the front door of the ER. So, of course, the nurse on the other line is like, well, 
what do you need? Like, who is this patient? What do you need it for? Can't you call an ambulance? And remember how we set this up. Like, Secret Service at this point, this is an attempted assassination. He has run as this cold warrior. Um, later on, there will be uh, the possibility that the Soviets were amassing submarines off the Atlantic coast. That turned out yeah. to be not a thing. Um, just turned out to be a normal shift of, of sub-operations at that time. But people were terrified that this was the beginning of World War III. I've listened to a podcast with the head of the Secret Service, Reagan Secret Service detail, whose name I can't remember. And he talks about this. This could be the Soviets. We're under attack. We don't know if there's a sleeper agent or what. Other is the vice president, maybe the first lady. We don't know. And so this is all going through their heads as they are speeding away back towards uh, the White House. And as they're now, they now have to then bring Reagan to this emergency room, which has obviously not been cleared. To mm -hmm the assassins know that that's where we're going is that do they have they you know no one knows what's happening this is all and they confusing. don't there's there's no secure communication so they don't want to say over an open airwave like we're bringing the president to gwer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyone out there want to come um so yeah that is that is totally how this gets set up um and this this is sort of where the story starts to get funny and i always I was trying to brace my audience for this. Um, e even when I begin this story, when I bring people to uh, the Washington Hilton, I'm like, first of all, everyone survives. Uh, so it's a good story in that sense. Um, but the, the crazy part is he will keep his sense of humor throughout this entire ordeal. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. So the Secret Service, they're speeding towards GW. They have no idea if anyone's monitoring this communication channel. So they just say, just have a stretcher there. We'll be there soon. So the nurse on the other end of the phone clearly hangs up. She's like, I don't know what the heck's going on here. Um, and there is no stretcher when the presidential motorcade comes up. So imagine the scene, presidential motorcade sort of slams into uh, that little overhang with the ER and they're waiting for someone to come out with the stretcher. No one's coming out with the stretcher. <laughs> And they're waiting. Now, of course, they're not waiting more than like 30 seconds or a minute. But keep in mind, the president has been shot. He has a bullet that is collapsing his lung. And no one has any idea that that is happening. So they wait and they wait. And finally, and this is one of the things where I say, like, again, I don't care what you think about Ronald Reagan's politics. The man is a badass cowboy because he decides under his own power to get up out of the car unassisted and he sort of instantly enters campaign mode because they've been sitting there for, you know, at least a few seconds and there's sirens and people are sort of wondering what's going on. And of course... And it should be mentioned, I'm going to jump yeah. in here and mention for anybody who isn't familiar with Washington, this isn't that far. And traveling with a Secret Service motorcade at top speed... I think they're there this is four or five minutes. I was going to yeah. say, that can't be more than five cool. minutes from uh, the Hinkley Hilton. Um, even with a detour towards the White House, this is all very yeah, fast. Very, very fast. Um, and again, I, I always say, you know, they wait and they wait. They weren't waiting that long, but it was long enough for the president to say, you know, screw this and get out of the car on his own. And he sort of enters campaign mode. He like smiles to people. He like waves to a few other people. He's like, nothing to see, nothing's wrong here. Um, and then once he gets inside the ER under his own power, uh, I think one of the nurses there, she recalled this later, First of all, she clearly saw who it was. And then second of all, she said that she could see him turning white. Um, so he was clearly entering shock. Um, he sort of gets himself into the doorway and then collapses down on one knee. 
Now this time, nurses, doctors, everyone comes over um, and tries to assist him. Um, they get him up on a table. They take his blood pressure, which I'm not a doctor, um, but his blood pressure was 60 systolic. Oh, that's not good at all. I'm pretty sure the normal is somewhere around 140. And, and dead is not much less than 60. Um, yeah. Um, so he is clearly entering shock. Uh, and they still don't know he's been shot. So they take his blood pressure. And of course, they get him up on a gurney or a stretcher. And the nurses start to cut away his $1,000 suit. Now, Rebecca, how do I know it's a $1,000 suit? I don't know, Dan. How do you know that it's a $1,000 suit? Because that's what he starts screaming at the nurses as they're trying to cut it away. Stop cutting my $1,000 suit. Again, the president's been shot and he's like concerned about his $1,000 suit. So of course- Wait a minute. (laughs) We've got the president of the United States who doesn't know he's been shot yet. Not know he's been shot. But he is in the hospital and something's very clearly wrong. And there's been an attack of some kind. And he's literally cracking dad jokes. Yes, the, the whole time. Like bad dad jokes. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole string awesome. of dad jokes from here on out. Um, so they get him up onto this uh, gurney and they start cutting away his clothes. And he starts screaming at them, stop screwing my thousand dollars. And of course, all nurses are like, oh, yes, sir, we'll do that. And they just continue to, to strip him down. And that's when they start to notice he's bleeding out of his armpit. And they find the bullet wounds and they flip him over and they realize there's no exit wound. And holy crap, this has just gotten so much more serious. Um, This is not a punctured lung or anything like that. This is the president's uh, circling the drain at this point. Um, By this point, uh, he does need to be intubated for a little bit. Um, But I think they bring Nancy to him first. So they're they're sort of cutting away his clothing. Um, Oh! And I almost forgot one of the other craziest parts of this story. So they cut away the president's suit and they put it into an evidence bag. Um, And the FBI shows up at the hospital. And if you've ever dealt with the FBI, they're the FBI and they know it and they can do whatever the heck they want. And they basically started to take jurisdiction on this. They were claiming that it was a domestic crime scene, a federal crime scene, and that they were the agency in charge. So they collect the evidence of the president's suit. Now, this is sort of a big problem. And one of the military attaches who's with the president at the hospital, like starts to run after the FBI agents as they're walking out the door with this thing, screaming, no, you can't do that. And they say, we're the FBI, we'll do whatever the hell we want. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's what I imagine they say. Uh, And they walk out the door with the president's suit. Now, the problem with this is inside the president's suit is the president's wallet. And inside the president's wallet is the president's gold card. And Rebecca, you know that I'm not talking about the card. That you We're got. not talking about MasterCard. We're not talking about MasterCard. We're not talking about uh, shopping trips on Rodeo Drive. You're talking about what happens in case of the worst. The worst. And what is the worst? Uh, a Soviet attack. A Soviet attack. Nuclear attack. So the gold card is the key to the nuclear weapons, which went missing for about three or four days until the FBI finally uh, turned around and gave it back uh, to the Oval Office. Do you guys know what that's called? The football? No, the the code, the, the thing that the president carries that has his code for the football. So the football is not carried by the president. Right. No, it's carried by an aide, yeah. Right, the thing the president carries, what you are calling the gold, the gold card, card is called the biscuit. Oh, I did know that. I did know that. Okay. I don't, but I feel like they could have come up with something more clever yeah. to go. With. I mean, football and biscuits do not go together. Yeah. No, they don't. We'll work on this and we'll, we'll send something. We'll workshop it. 
the Secret Service. If you want to see the football, by the way, you can go to the museum. Not the current one. They don't have one anymore. <laughs> We've evolved past this technologically. Yeah. Uh, but they have an old football at the Smithsonian in the president's exhibit in American history. So that's part of the story that I always love is this like jurisdictional warfare of the executive branch and the gold card just went missing for a little bit. Uh, welcome to Washington, gang. We are full of jurisdictional ridiculousness. So we're back at the hospital. Um, they bring in the first lady, Nancy Reagan, and this is where the dag jokes just start rolling. Um, and of course, Nancy Reagan, visibly distressed as anyone would be in this case, and she rushes over uh, to the president and she grabs his hand and she says, Ronnie, Ronnie, what happened? And he sort of struggles and he says, oh, Nancy, I forgot to duck. Um, which is, uh, is actually a line from Jack Dempsey, who was a heavyweight fighter at the time. And when he lost- Of course his... he would quote Jack Dempsey in this moment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And when uh, Dempsey lost his heavyweight title, that is what he said to his wife when she asked what happened. It's like, oh, I forgot to die. Um, so the president has a collapsed lung. Uh, the bullet is less than half an inch away from his heart. He is profusely bleeding on the inside and he's still cracking these dad jokes, uh, trying to make Nancy feel okay. So we fast forward a little bit. At this, at some point, and I can never, I've never really found a good source on exactly when this happens, but at some point they do need to intubate the president. They bring over chalkboard and they say, Mr. President, can you breathe? Is everything okay? And he starts like scribbling out something, <laughs> like much longer than the word yes or no. Um, and the nurses sort of look around at each other and then <laughs> they look down at the chalkboard and it says, all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, uh, which is another... <laughs> famous line uh, from W.C. Fields, a famous comedian of his age, in front of Reagan's age. Um, and that was sort of one of his uh, slap happy lines was, all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. They have him intubated. Uh, they eventually clear him for surgery. They get him all sort of uh, ready to go in under 30 minutes. Like it's a, it's a quick, quick process. Um, <clears throat> they get him into surgery. And this is, I think, the final and best bad jo dad joke of the mind. I'm not sure if it's dad joke, but um, it's also a very famous anecdote, uh, which has been repeated many times before. So maybe you've heard it before. But as they wheel him into the surgical suite, he sort of struggles with his oxygen mask. And he looks around to all the doctors and he says, I hope you're all Republicans. Um, which, of course, actually, none of them were. They all turned out to be very liberal Democrats. Awesome. Um, but... Uh, the lead surgeon at that time, he steps forward and he says, sir, today we are all Republicans. Um, they put the president under, they perform this operation, and here is also where sort of the miracle part of all of this comes in. They remove the bullet, the president loses over half of his blood volume. So they it, 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 it can't stop the bleeding, they actually have to open his chest um, to get at the, uh, the, or the, um, the internal hemorrhaging that was occurring. Um, it takes about almost two hours, the entire operation. But when they extract the bullet, it's only at that time that they realize it's an explosive tipped bullet. The other thing that's, I think, party. So right now it would be not Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate Majority Leader, uh, would in fact be Senator Grassley of Iowa, who's uh, been uh, in the Senate the longest. After that, it goes to uh, the president's cabinet, starting with the Secretary of State uh, and working its the way down uh, the entire list of the cabinet. So this 25th Amendment is basically uh, in, in case of emergency or incapacitation. 
The other reason, oh, by the way, the other reason you referred about the 25th Amendment, there is a clause in the 25th Amendment um, that deals with in case the president is mentally incompetent. Um, there, it in it, what basically it does is uh, forces all the entire cabinet and the vice president all have to agree that the president is incompetent in some way. If the president is mentally able, he can contest this. And there is a trial very similar to an impeachment trial that takes place in Congress. Uh, obviously, if the president is dead, that's not an issue, but in case of incompetence. Uh, and the reason it's so very complicated is they want to prevent a coup, basically, by the vice president. And a lot of this also goes back to Wilson, because they didn't they didn't know what to do when Wilson suffers this massive stroke, because in the Constitution, it's like, if he's dead, the power is transferred to the vice president. But they're, those silly founding fathers didn't think of exactly everything, um, and they didn't think about a, a stroke incapacitating a president. So the other part of this sort of badass story, he he he's like back to work the next day. I mean, he's not at a hundred percent, but he does sign a piece of legislation. Like the next day, once he's out of surgery, um, he'll go home about like oh, I don't know a week, two weeks later. I usually I would usually make the joke on a tour um, that like a few years ago I broke some fingers. And I was done. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't take out the trash. I couldn't do any of my chores. I was done. I was just like up on the couch. Um, but the president takes a bullet uh, through his lung, collapses his lung, lands less than half an inch away from his heart. And the man is back to work like a couple weeks later. Now, later on, his doctor, the presidential physician, will say that he probably wasn't fully recovered until like October of that year. Um, and that sort of goes back to what you were saying, Rebecca, about how the executive branch not entirely forthcoming with just how exactly or how badly um, the president was wounded in all this. And he made appearances. He was he was signing things and um, taking pictures and back at the Oval Office uh, about a month, I think, the end of April. He was sort of resuming his normal duties. And that is pretty much the story there. We can I can also tie up some loose ends, of course, James Brady um, and uh, the others will go on and live and survive this. We talked about how James Brady becomes a huge advocate for gun control, um, culminating with the passage of the James Brady Act in 1994. John Hinckley Jr., an interesting sort of follow-up. Um, he is, of course, declared uh, not guilty by reason of mental instability. This will then lead to a 1984 law that revises when you can use that defense because there's so much outrage um, that he basically was not found guilty for this horrific crime. Um, but he is placed at St. Elizabeth Hospital, which uh, local DC folks will recognize as the, the federal mental institution. And there, that's where psychiatrists will diagnose him with erotomania. Doesn't have a successful first few years or few decades there. Um, he tries to apply for more freedoms and to get out of the hospital and they do a room search uh, before they, they do that and they find that he is still really obsessed with Jodie Foster. They find like creepy letters and things like that. So they don't let him out just then. Um, but towards the late 1990s, his doctors sort of come around um, and they say that he is mostly recovered and you know with some supervision, uh, he should be allowed back into society. So it's a slow process. But actually just last year, I think he completed the final hurdles um, and he is out on his own uh, someplace without adult supervision. Um, but the, the doctors who take care of him say that he is completely reformed and hopefully they're correct. So maybe we should stop 
saying what we're going to talk about next week until we confirm what we're going to talk about next time. So maybe just in upcoming episodes, Dan will do drugs where we are going to talk about Robert Todd Lincoln. Who else are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about uh, Charles Lindbergh. That's right. Charles Lindbergh. Um, we're going to talk about. I think I'm settling into the, the assassin speech, the assassin guy, because I want to do Truman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You should definitely do it. Um, you're gonna. We're gonna talk about. Becca wants to talk about Charles Gateau and um, James Garfield. I am always up to talk about Warren G. Harding. The G stands for goodness sakes. He was really, really bad. Um, will you be mentioning Jerry? In this I in talk? fact will. Yes, yes, yes. I will. <laughs> oh, guest, you will oh. need to, uh, or listeners, you'll need to listen yeah, to that episode. Then come back. To see why we're laughing about that. We need, we need to learn about Jerry. Everyone needs to learn no, about Jerry. No, everyone does not need to learn about Jerry. No, it's the most important presidential fact. Uh, so thanks for listening in to Tour Guide Tell All with Candon, oh. Rebecca, and Dan. And if you guys are want to help support us in this endeavor, you can buy gift certificates to join us on future tours. You can hear Dan tell the story in person which is essential because you did not see all of his hand movements with his with his storytelling uh you can purchase gift certificates on our website dcbyfoot.com uh you can become a patron patrons on our patreon page are going to get sneak peek special preview access to listening to all of our podcasts before that before they are um released out into the wild you can listen to tour guide tell all for free on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, podbean where else do you get podcasts anywhere wherever you get podcasts wherever you get your podcasts we're available cool well thank you guys thanks for coming along with us this was a good time less good for reagan probably mm-hmm.